happens when you don't have tenure and when you start putting infringements on academic freedom is that it's really difficult to attract outside faculty to come to Florida to take a position in the universities of Florida. So it's going to be hard to attract faculty to come. It's going to be hard to keep faculty here who might have offers to go somewhere else. Not only at the faculty level, but it's also going to be hard to bring in the best students. The best students want to go to a university that supports academic freedom, will allow them to develop their intellectual interests based on their interests, not based on whatever political whim happens to be at the time. So the best students are not going to go to a school that doesn't allow them to do that, which means the entire state of Florida is going to be off the map for them. Not only that, but again, we'll start to lose the best students that are already here because they know they can go somewhere else and do what they want to do with their education, supported by faculty who can teach the way that these subjects should be taught. That was Dr. Christina Richards, an associate professor of ecology, conservation, and marine biology at the University of South Florida in Tampa. You've heard a lot about Florida and higher education lately. None of it good. Normally, Richards is teaching and running a lab where she and her team study how organisms respond to their environment, and her webpage emphasizes diversity and inclusion as a strength of her research group. But on February 23, 2023, Richards wasn't in her lab, and hundreds of University of South Florida students had also left their classrooms. They were engaging in a walkout to protest Florida governor and 2024 presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis's assault on their academic freedom. Dr. Richards has spoken out strongly against Governor DeSantis and the Florida legislature's undermining of higher education in Florida. Legislation in that state is most famous for targeting diversity initiatives, banning books, and censoring speech about race, sexuality, and gender. And Richards, unlike the many adjunct faculty who teach at USF on annual contracts, can protest because she has tenure and cannot be easily dismissed. But tenure may also be in jeopardy in Florida. On May 15, 2022, DeSantis signed SB 7044, a bill that, as WUSF Public Radio's Bob Barrett explains, establishes a new post-tenure five-year review cycle for professors at the state's public institutions. At the signing ceremony, the governor said the bill will keep faculty and curriculum in line with what he calls the state's priorities. But Florida, although an outlier, isn't alone. Georgia took this step in 2021. A bill to end tenure has advanced in the Texas legislature, and similar laws have been proposed and failed in South Carolina, Wisconsin, and Missouri. In other words, politicians are trying to legislate what is taught in American public colleges and universities and enforce their own ideological preferences by firing faculty who disagree. At her next five-year review, it is quite possible that Professor Richards could be stripped of her tenure, her academic freedom, and her job. This is not just because Richards has publicly opposed these new rules, but because she believes that her lab depends on a diverse working environment to produce knowledge that is critical to our planet's future. And that kind of thinking is now against the law in Florida. As University of Nebraska English professor Julia Schleck explains in her book Dirty Knowledge, Academic Freedom in the Age of Neoliberalism, academic freedom is the linchpin of excellence in higher education, and it relies on the protection of tenure. 
The erosion of both are one consequence of how higher education has been transformed by the market-based thinking, known as neoliberalism, that pervades 21st century institutions. But tenure isn't just threatened by politicians in Florida, Texas, and other states who want to take it away. It's threatened by the vast number of people who don't have tenure and who, as a consequence, have no academic freedom. Three-quarters of those teaching in American colleges and universities are not and will probably never be eligible for tenure. This means that although they have free speech, they are not entitled to the core principle of academic freedom, judgment by faculty peers, not administrators, not politicians, not political appointees. Furthermore, as Schleck explains, academic freedom and free speech are too often conflated in the public mind. Whereas we are all entitled to free speech, except in the rarest of circumstances, academic freedom only protects professors, their research, their teaching, and their public utterances from the powerful. And why should anyone who isn't a college professor care? Because, as Schleck argues, the ivory tower has always been a bad metaphor for what higher education is and does. Knowledge isn't pure. It isn't separate from the society in which it exists. And scholars do the messy thinking that benefits everybody. Join Julia and me for this episode of Why Now? Where History and Politics Meet the Challenge of Today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 18, No Ivory Tower. Schleck, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me here, Claire. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And your book, Dirty Knowledge, Academic Freedom in the Age of Neoliberalism, pulled me in with the title alone. What do you mean by dirty knowledge? Well, dirty knowledge is referring to the, the all of the knowledge that is created at the university. And we tend to have this idea that of the ivory tower where things are discovered or researched um, or innovated by professors in a way that that is not contaminated by any kind of outside interest, right? That, that we're looking at pure knowledge, that we contrast it with knowledge that's created by, say, a company, which has a, a clear and vested profit interest in what it's discovering or, you know, it's R&D wing or something. But at the university, it's supposed to be a kind of place apart where knowledge is, is pure and unsullied by any of the concerns of the world, either monetary or political or anything like that. And part of the point I wanted to make in, in the book is to acknowledge fully um, and to say that release the, the secret of the academy that, <laughs> that we are all in fact kind of politically invested. We are people who live in the world, who have commitments, who have concerns, who are driven by particular interests, who need to find funding. And more and more, we need to find funding from very interested outside sources. And all 
of these things impinge on the information that we produce in the university system. And uh, I also want to make the point that that, of course, is, has always been the case to some degree, but it's increasingly so now. And I actually think it's it's helpful for us to go ahead and say that out loud rather than perpetuating what is essentially a, a myth that we're somehow all entirely disinterested and um, and have no other concerns except pure knowledge. So I want to circle back around to some of these ideas, but I want to go now to a story you begin the book with about a member of the University of Nebraska faculty, a graduate student who's finishing her dissertation and she gets into trouble. And this is the kind of thing we're hearing about all the time now. Yeah, so this is the, the story of um, now Dr. Uh, Courtney Lawton, who was a grad student in the English department at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And she was a politically active person uh, who was also um, both not only working on her dissertation, doing her PhD, but also teaching for our department. And this is a, a pretty common uh, occurrence in which graduate students that are nearly finished or who have just finished tends to teach at the departments on uh, where they did their PhD in order to kind of keep them afloat financially while they're looking for academic work elsewhere. Um, and I'm sure, you know, your your listeners know or, or that we'll touch on it, but it's very difficult to find a full-time, even semi-permanent academic job at this point. And here is elsewhere, it was officially a, a faculty position. It was like an adjunct position. The, the title we used was lecturer. So it was a one-year contract uh, to teach English classes, writing classes mainly um, within our department. One day at the beginning of the semester, Courtney was going by the the student union, and uh, there are often tables for uh, different organizations or clubs that are trying to persuade the incoming undergraduates to join them. And she noticed that one of these tables, and it, it was kind of a solo endeavor on that day, so it's just one table with one person behind it, was for Turning Point USA. And that is probably an organization that has now more familiar with people uh, to people at the time. I think she was aware of it because she was an activist and uh, Turning Point had been very vocally trying to advocate for the defunding of higher education. Um, so it was somewhat ironic to, to have them you know, working within the university system to recruit undergraduates, but they definitely do that. Um, and, and she decided you know, that this was not an organization that she appreciated having at her institution. So she said, well, but if it's a if it's really a, a registered student organization, if it's been approved by the university as one of the conservative-minded political clubs on campus, then that's that. Um, so she went back to her office and double-checked to make sure it was or wasn't, and it was not, as far as she could tell. And so she went back out and made a big sign and walked around in front of the table protesting this organization and you know, essentially trying to discourage students from joining it. She uh, is a... a a, a vocal, boisterous person who employed plenty of profanity in doing this. Um, and uh, the one person behind the table um, wasn't someone she knew, um, but it was a, a young woman. And that person came out and took pictures of Courtney and filmed. There were a few other people who kind of stopped by and joined the protest along the way. But in the end, it all just kind of wrapped up, especially since um, one of the professors who joined the protest noticed that the undergrad seemed to be, or the, the woman behind the table seemed to be getting upset. It turns out she was an undergrad at the institution and they're like, eh, tone it down. So the whole thing folds after, you know, only a dozen people are taking place. 
But then over the weekend, it suddenly became like national news. <laughs> like it was, there were still shots of Courtney um, uh, raising her middle finger at the the uh, person who was taking the picture um, of her. There was video of it, and it got kind of fed through a right wing media ecosystem. And so, you know, it was on Breitbart, it was on Campus Watch, um, Campus Reform, a, a whole kind of series of things, and it got you know, sent to all the Nebraska politicians, all of the administration. Um, and so it became very, very quickly um, a, a huge, you know, from a, an administrative standpoint, a huge PR disaster for the institution. So by Monday morning, um, and this happened on a Friday, they were calling Courtney in to have meetings with administrators and determine what had happened and what to do about it. And I should say that at the time, um, I was the graduate chair of our uh, department, so I had a front row seat um, for most of this, uh, as well as serving as the uh, committee chair for the American Association of University Professors, which serves as kind of a, a guide and a watchdog, um, an advocacy organization for academic freedom on university campuses. So Courtney Lawton was ultimately suspended with pay. Correct. She was um, told she could no longer teach, but that they would continue to pay her. And that was that was the university's idea of, of a fair solution. Now, I, I want to tell our listeners that this is what Turning Point USA does. They create confrontations. They are one of a number of conservative organizations on campus whose job is basically to create media that stigmatizes the university. But she didn't do anything wrong. Okay, and we want to talk about why Dr. Lawton didn't do anything wrong, because we have two phrases here. One is academic freedom and one is freedom of speech. Can you tell our listeners what the Lawton case falls under and why? Everyone is probably pretty familiar with uh, freedom of speech, um, but probably a lot less so uh, with academic freedom. And they tend to be conflated. And it, it was obvious to me in how the Lawton case was handled that, that everybody pretty much thought that academic freedom was free speech for professors. Freedom of speech, obviously, it's a constitutionally protected right within the United States. It keeps people from being persecuted by the government for their speech. Uh, and it equally applies to, to all and to all utterances. Academic freedom, on the other hand, is something that applies only to academics, those who are teaching, researching. Generally, you know, it's unlike free speech, which is enshrined in our legal documents, academic freedom uh, is more of a cultural practice or concept within uh, higher education and to some degree within K-12 that was worked out in the early part of the, the 20th century uh, by uh, education reformers. Academic freedom was designed to protect the quality of the research that university faculty were doing and its dissemination to students. And that was seen as necessary because those two things were viewed as what the reformers called a common good or a public good, that that work, that work benefited everyone in our society. And therefore, it was worth it for our society to give extra protections to university faculty. And those protections explicitly were employment protections so that someone who was researching something that was unpopular or teaching something that angered a certain powerful group would not be fired 
for their uh, for their work for their speech. So unlike freedom of speech, uh, First Amendment rights, you you of course can't be persecuted by the government, but your employer can definitely fire you. And 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 you know most people work in at will employment situations, and so if you say something in a public space and your employer decides that you know like they they do not appreciate you know you as an employee being associated with that idea, then they can fire you. But, you know, explicitly academic freedom was designed to protect professors from being fired for the work that they were doing because that work was seen to benefit all of society. That was extended eventually to cover the kinds of speech that professors might give in a public forum. And so in there, it kind of overlaps with free speech, mainly because it was seen as a kind of backdoor way to fire somebody whose research or teaching was upsetting people. Um, and so in order to protect the, the primary work of faculty, the research and teaching, academic freedom was arguably kind of extended to the, the kinds of utterances that faculty might make just as citizens. You know, the testimony we offer at the legislature, the protest we attend, the letter to the editor we write, that all of that would be covered as well. And so Courtney Lawton's speech would be, you know, covered under free speech, certainly. But she also should have received protection from employment retaliation through academic freedom. And uh, the AAUP, which as I mentioned, kind of advocates for and watchdogs uh, academic freedom, noted that that was not the case. They didn't find the fact that she was kept from teaching, even if she was paid, to be convincing that that was, that was in fact a retaliation. <clears throat> and so they saw that as problematic enough that they censured the university. Academic freedom is then, and correct me if I'm wrong, a kind of contract between professors as a group and society more broadly. So how has academic freedom been eroded? And this is where I think we get to the neoliberal part of your book. Can you first start by saying, what do we mean when we're talking about neoliberalism? And second, how does the neoliberal university, how does that change the meaning of academic freedom? Neoliberalism, uh, in the way that I'm using it here, is the application of market values to all aspects of university life. And so in many ways, it is, uh, it is absolutely pervaded kind of all aspects of the institution. Um, one of the primary ways that that's happened and affected academic freedom is just through um, hiring, right? That labor costs within the university have been controlled in the same way that has happened outside the university in which labor has become kind of more and more short-term and unpredictable for um, for the workers. And so it, they have become like gig jobs, essentially. So whereas a faculty member a generation ago, primarily the jobs would have been tenure line positions, which means you have about a six-year probationary contract that gets renewed every year. And then if your work is considered adequate, you are voted into what is essentially a continuous contract that unless you screw up really badly, you know, like you can expect your, hi your hiring in that position to, to go on indefinitely. That is the employment protection that, that allows for academic freedom for the professors who are doing the work of researching and teacher and teaching 
teaching to feel free to follow their best professional judgment rather than worry about what a politician would think or what the administration will think or what parents would think. That is the way in which that employment kind of linked to protecting academic freedom. But now if 75% of the professoriate is working on like one or two year contracts. Three quarters of them are working off the tenure track with no hope of ever getting on it. They're not like probationary on the way to tenure. They, they simply are never going to have these tenure line positions. And so if three quarters of our faculty are operating without the employment uh, contract that was supposed to protect academic freedom, do we really, does it really exist um, in the United States anymore? Seems to be like an important question worth asking. But that's, you know, that's not the only way in which neoliberalism has worked its way into the practices and the mindset of the institution. So determining what one should learn in a major is something that was traditionally left to the experts in that field. If you're a chemistry professor, then you as the chemist know best you know, like what, sh- what students need to learn in order to be experts in chemistry. Now, budgets are allocated primarily on the basis of how many students they are teaching at a given time versus the number of in- instructors in the room. So this means that even if it's better that a certain idea or set of ideas be taught in a small group setting, you will likely start raising the amount of students in the room because that improves the ratio of one faculty member teaching 30 students or 40 or 200, right? And that is a better kind of profit ratio (laughs) because the students... Uh, themselves pay tuition. And so that's, you know, the way in which now department budgets are calculated is how many student credit hours have the faculty generated, given the labor costs for that department. And this, you know, both puts pressure on departments that need to teach small classes, writing intensive classes, musical training, right? Music schools tend to to give one-on-one lessons. That both means that it's harder for those departments to exist, but also then within them, like what, what constitutes the best curriculum will start to be pressured by how many students can we get to sign up for this class? Can we make it more attractive? So we start kind of catering to the desires or interests or needs, um, perceived needs of the students who are treated more and more like consumers or customers. And we're providing them a product and trying to persuade them to buy that product rather than functioning as a set of experts who are transmitting the knowledge and the expertise needed for someone to to have competency in a particular field of knowledge. Let me stop you there because I want to clarify something for our audience. What you're saying is that as universities have come to be more and more like for-profit corporations, they're, they're not really what they were 125 years ago when the modern university emerged. So that as that has happened, academic freedom has eroded. We don't actually need to do anything or have anyone be explicitly harmed to know that academic freedom has been eroded by the employment conditions themselves. And then the second thing that I think you're saying is that Dr. Lawton was treated as if her First Amendment rights had been violated, which they were, but not as if she had academic freedom, which she was not entitled to as a non-tenured member of the faculty. That 
in fact, the University of Nebraska said, you're not good for the brand, so we're going to fire you. And that that's actually, you can do that in a free speech case. A am I right about this? Yeah, well, officially, the administration reviewed the CCTV footage and decided that that Courtney Lawton had violated the free speech rights of the student who was tabling for Turning Point. So that, and many universities have written policies in this way, that your free speech rights end where you are impeding those of somebody else. Uh, and we kind of retroactively wrote that into our bylaws after the this this particular incident. But at the time, that that was the decision. So she she was the one who had impeded the free speech rights of the other person, and therefore, you know, her own free speech rights had not been violated. As someone who was working on a one year contract, you know, it was fairly obvious uh, that nobody brought in the question of her academic freedom. And I think that's in part because it gets just collapsed into free speech. So they only they only considered it in terms of free speech and not in terms of academic freedom. And indeed, it would have been hard to, because she was already kind of working on a line that, you know, was a, a, a free speech or a, an academic freedom violation to begin with in some respects. And it seems to me that, that one of the things that's very important here is to let the public know what their interest in academic freedom is. Because for several decades, I've heard people say, you know, what are these like lifetime appointments? Nobody has a lifetime appointment. Why should a professor be entitled to that? So let's sort of take what we've established here and tell our audience, why should the general public who are not college professors care about academic freedom? Yeah, so this gets back to the the original justification for it. And it's it's one that I want to nuance or challenge in the book, but I think it's important to understand kind of just to, as a starting point. And that's this idea of the common good, right? That the work that is done in universities is something that benefits everyone in society, both by educating a population that would then be better um, prepared to participate in democracy, since you know we have a, a form of governance that requires that people participate um, and do so in in a relatively knowledgeable way, in a way that you know is better when people are rhetorically effective. There is also uh, the research done that we simply you know produce innovations that, especially during the the Cold War period, were seen as critical for America's advance globally, but also just for human progress and and comfort in the world. And then finally, that we also provided experts uh, in to help guide those who are governing as the, the questions that confronted those who were governing got more technical and more difficult for someone to understand who was a layman, then these people could serve as advisors and provide expert guidance, explanations, or expertise about the specific areas that they studied that could help people govern. So those were traditionally the areas that university faculty were seen as contributing to through their labors to society at large. And in order to do that, in a way that actually produced their best professional judgment, their truth as they saw it, like the, 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 their best answer at the moment, they needed to not be worried that they were going to be fired if they said something that would anger those with economic power, those with political power, powerful people in the church, parents, just the population. So they needed to be able to speak the truth. 
uh, and and not be worried that they would be punished for it. And that that was why it was important. So if you know if we've moved beyond that, then perhaps we don't need it anymore. But it seems to me like you know that those things are ever more critical right now. They are, and I want to turn us to um, something that is very live while we're recording this, which is the University of Pennsylvania is finally coming around to trying to decide whether they're going to discipline law professor Amy Wax, who believes that she is speaking the truth. Other people would say what she is saying is bigoted and wrong. But if Wax believes that she is speaking truth to power, should her academic freedom, should the protections of academic freedom still apply to her? So this gets to another aspect of academic freedom that we haven't mentioned yet, which is that it's not unlike free speech. Again, it's not an individual right. You know, like we've been talking about faculty and you presumed that it's an individual faculty member, and that's often how it plays out. But ultimately, conceptually, it's a freedom that's granted to the faculty as a body, as a profession, and uh, and then specifically as a discipline. So if, you know, the professors within the law faculty or any faculty say, yes, this is good teaching, this is good research, it should be rewarded, then, you know, Amy Wax should be, along with anyone else who fits that definition, should continue to be given kind of all of the you know, special privileges and, you know, aspects of of our job. If, however, there is somebody who is teaching something that the rest of the faculty say, you know, like this is outside of, you know, the best kind of practices of our profession, you are teaching something that's out of date, or that is profoundly outside the norms of our discipline, then, you know, like we don't see this as appropriate curriculum for the students. And, you know, like you should not teach that anymore. We will assign you another class. Uh, we will, you know, like insist that you follow the the aims that we as a, as a joint faculty have laid out for this class. And that's true with research as well. If what she is trying to uh, publish or present professionally is something that, you know, the rest of the field looks at and says, no way, then it's not going to be published, right? That's there's peer review, there's, you know, like, so, so in a sense, like, when tenure is implemented as a way to protect the academic freedom of the faculty, the responsibility for governing what is appropriate and and uh, and best kind of and, and reflects the expertise of the field shifts to the experts in the field and they have a responsibility to do that governance and so i would say that this is not like something that the administration should be handling because they are not experts in the field it should be something for her colleagues to be handling to say this is not appropriate within the bounds of the discipline you know this is something that indicates Uh, a lack of professional expertise, a lack of appropriate skill in our field. Um, And so that is the the primary kind of locus for a place where judgment should happen on any of the work done by faculty. Um, And if she's saying these things kind of in her own public sphere way, you know, she's just out there speaking as a citizen, that is her right. We should all be like, vigorously pushing back, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, but that, is, that is also our right. And so the point here is that if she's using her academic platform to do this, then she should be judged by other academics as to whether she is actually fulfilling the terms of her job. 
So I think you're raising an incredibly important point here, and it's very clarifying for our audience, because one of the things that contingent faculty do not have access to is the protection of their peers and the review of their peers. They are hired and fired by administrators. And it seems to me one of the important points you're making about the neoliberal academy is that a larger and larger percentage of our colleagues are contingent faculty. And so academic freedom is de facto eroded by that because it is applying to fewer and fewer people. Am I, am I right about that? Yes, absolutely. And often their contracts are like 100% teaching or 100% research so that, you know, unlike traditional tenure line contracts, which have a mix of research, teaching and service, and the service is supposed to be part of that self-governance, then they have no official like role for that in their jobs at all. It is explicitly excluded from their contract that they should be part of a joint faculty governance. Um, and and so anybody who, who does try to participate in that, you know, is doing so as like free labor. Well, and, and you say toward the end of the book, you take on the question of unionization. And I think both you and I are, you know, in favor of unions and we support the unions on our campuses. But you're saying actually unionization does not provide the protections of academic freedom. And could you thread that needle for our audience? Sure. And I, I should say, I mean, like union contracts can absolutely like ensconce a series of structural things in, in a contract about the, the working conditions, you know, and insofar as academic freedom is a kind of labor relation, then to some degree, you know, like, yeah, you know, a union contract can do that just as well as a set of bylaws can do it for non-unionized campuses. What a union can't do is get to this question of whether anyone else cares about academic freedom, right? Like, and so, you know, it's, it is not just a kind of evil plot by, you know, administrators or trustees to start hiring faculty off the tenure line. You know, they're doing that because the pressures financially on higher education right now are getting so extreme given the, the cuts from state funding and um, other traditional sources of revenue that they're looking desperately for ways to save money. And that is one of the ways that, that they are doing it. And so union contracts, by definition, are going to regulate kind of the distribution of resources within the institution. Um, and, you know, that's, that is something that, that, as you say, I'm entirely in favor of. And I think that there are some maldistribution issues that can be addressed in this way, and that academic freedom protections can be codified um, and extended through those contracts. But it doesn't get to this broader question of what role education is playing in our country today. Like, what should universities be doing? And if, you know, what we're doing isn't to produce the kind of best conceivable answer within our fields of knowledge, if it's not serving a common good anymore, then, well, you know, it seems like then academic freedom isn't necessary. And, and to some degree, it looks like we've already made that decision, given that we're now three quarters of the way there in terms of not extending it to the faculty for the most part, um, except for some of those unionized campuses where they can try to do it through a kind of legal negotiated means. And so, in a way, you know, my my thoughts on the, the limits of unions is that ultimately we need to have a huge conversation of which they can be part, but they will they can only be one voice in this broader social discussion about what we do in higher education. Like what social role do we serve? 
thanks to the kind of incursion of market values into the university and the way we think about universities, all we ever hear is that we produce jobs, that we produce innovations, that we are drivers of the economy, that uh, we bring in you know, corporate partnerships to the state. And so there's a lot of ways in which our worth is articulated, but it's almost all in economic terms. Our institution just launched a capital campaign in which the faculty were one of the areas of giving that were highlighted. And the language that was used to describe why one might want to give to an institution and its faculty in particular is that we brought intellectual capital to the state and that our activities generated new areas of commercialization and um, other potential capital. And so like we were ourselves capital and we provide capital to the state. And that was all we did. That was, that was, that was our function. And so I think we need this broader discussion about what it is we're doing with education. Yeah. And when, when the language of the market intrudes on the university and, and totalizes it, we actually lose touch with what universities are supposed to be. I, you know, I want to toss one thing in here as somebody who was an English major and then got a PhD in history, which is one of the purposes of the humanities is to make people happy. And, you know, I think it's no accident that people who go back to college later in life in their 30s and 40s are more likely to major in the humanities than young people are. And listeners, I'll put a link to that in in the show notes. But it was a really interesting data point. So, Julia, why should our listeners read this book now? (laughs) Because I I want to get them thinking about that big question, right? Like, what is the point of the university? And uh, the book begins, you know, with one of the kinds of battles that are the main reason they get into the news right now. But that actually think are a distraction from the the bigger challenge to education, which are these huger questions about, you know, what role we play and do we have any function outside of an economic one or should we only be kind of thinking that that, that is our, our, we are economic drivers and, and that's it. But if it's not, then how do we try to protect what it is that we can offer? How do we articulate that in a way that, that you know, we'll find compelling enough to kind of justify broader social support for again? Because if we don't get there, then, you know, the universities are just going to kind of devolve into basically a kind of free public research arm for our kind of corporate aspects of our society. I mean, like, if, if that's all we do, then, then, then that is our, all we are doing is providing workers and providing research um, for industry. And I, I think universities used to do more, were seen as doing more and can do more, and that human existence should involve more than just attending to these economic considerations. And if you agree with that, then I, I would hope that you would pick up the book and um, and read through it and think about the challenges to, to higher ed right now and how we all might be contributing to the kind of conversations that bring up this question of what they need to be and do going forward. That's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week, 
that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.